I mean, it's weird how reporting on Russia prepares you in some ways for reporting in the States these days. Welcome to Beyond the Lecture, a podcast from the American Academy in Berlin. I'm your host, R.J. McGill. On November 27, 2018, author and journalist Masha Gessen, a staff writer at The New Yorker, was at the American Academy to deliver a lecture entitled Democracy and Imagination. The lecture was concerned foremost with two things. One, that Russia has become a mafia state that in many ways is coming to resemble Orwell's 1984. And two, that democracy is an idea that needs constant defense and stewardship if it's to flourish. While critical of Russia in this lecture, Gessen was also not sanguine about the current state of the United States. Over her journalistic career, Masha Gessen has written a lot about democracy and authoritarianism, and for good reason. Born in Moscow, she immigrated to the United States with her parents and siblings in 1981, when Gessen was a teenager. She moved back to Russia a decade later, reporting from Moscow for various U.S. and Russian outlets during the dissolution of the Soviet Empire about politics, the AIDS epidemic, medical genetics, the environment, LGBT rights, and eventually the administration of Vladimir Putin. But in 2013, as Russian authorities began whispering about taking children away from gay parents, and after being physically assaulted for being gay, Gessen moved her family promptly to New York City. Today, in addition to her job at The New Yorker, she's also a visiting professor at Amherst College. Gessen is also the author of 10 books, the most recent of which is The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, which last year won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, and in 2019 will receive the prestigious Leipzig Book Award for European Understanding. The day after Gessen's lecture, we asked American Academy fellow Joshua Yaffa, a journalist and The New Yorker's Moscow correspondent, to sit down with Gessen to talk about what's transpiring in Russian life under the reign of Vladimir Putin and the complex relationship among language, totalitarianism, and the ideals of democracy. Hi, Masha. Happy to get a chance to talk with you today. (laughs) Good to talk to you. In your lecture the other night at the uh, American Academy, you talked about democracy not as like a fixed institution, um, not so much the presence of certain processes uh, like elections and so on, but more um, as an idea or the kind of search uh, or quest uh, for an idea, something we aim for and never um, quite reach. Your last multiple award-winning book, uh, The Future is History, uh, was about how the totalitarian idea reconquered Russia, uh, a place uh, I know well and have lived for the past um, seven years. And I'm wondering if you could explain how that happened, how totalitarianism, uh, as you understand it, recaptured Russia in terms of how you define democracy. In other words, when did Russian society or the Russian public writ large reject or have taken from them this notion of democracy as an idea, a value to aspire toward. And the reason uh, I'm asking the question uh, this way is I wonder if there are some important or at least interesting moments and processes in that story, um, how that happened and when that happened, which might reflect the way in which American or German or British polities might be in danger of undergoing something similar uh, if they haven't already. So I think it's a little risky to try to draw sort of universal lessons from the Russian experience because actually I think the Russian experience is unique um, and it's unique precisely because of totalitarianism because it's the longest running totalitarian experiment in the world 
And what I think, what I tried to describe in the book was what happens after you have totalitarianism for so many generations that none of the people alive at the time that it ostensibly ends actually have a memory of living in a different system. That is related to the way I talked about democracy the other night and the way I'm thinking about democracy because democracy is an idea, right? Democracy is not, in fact, a set of mechanisms. Um, you know, and if you think about it for a minute, there's nothing inherent in the idea of government by the people that, for example, dictates that you have to have elections. Never mind a particular kind of elections, but even you know the very idea of elections, right? And and um, and in fact, there's a lot of great theoretical work on on lottery and how lottery, government by lottery would be much more representative and and would probably answer the the challenge of of a government by the people better than elections. That's just one example. Right? Um, I don't even think that in Russia we got to a point where the idea. I mean, not even took hold, but it was even in the air, right? There was a lot of talk about mechanisms. And that's probably not a terrible thing. Probably you can, there are lots of situations in the world and in human life when you create mechanisms and they sort of conjure a different state. That didn't happen in Russia. And I think that it, the reason it didn't happen in Russia is, is because of the legacy of totalitarianism and, and because that society is constituted as a totalitarian society. And the transformation we expected from it would have been fundamental. And so in a sense, it's not surprising that it didn't happen. Right? Other changes happened, but they're much lesser than, than what we sort of expected. And by we, I mean Western journalists and Moscow intellectuals and you know, I was wrong twice um, in both of those capacities. But I think if you if you take it more broadly, uh, which is probably much more what your question is about, um, and I and I talk about this in the book. I talk about Eric Fromm's idea of the, of escape from freedom, and his um, he had this idea that th- th- it's sort of two pronged. One is that there are two kinds of freedom. Uh, uh, there's freedom from which we all want. We all want our parents to stop telling us what to do, and there's freedom to, which is the freedom to invent one's future, to to do something that is yet unknown. And that can be very, very difficult. That's a burdensome freedom. That's a, that's a challenging freedom. And his the other prong of his idea is that there are certain moments in human history when that freedom becomes too much for too many people. And that, those are periods of great instability and great displa- displacement of people. Right. So that was his explanation for both the rise of um, Martin Luther and, and, and Calvin um, as the what he called magic helpers that people hand their agency over to, um, and the rise of Hitler and other um, aspiring totalitarians of the 20th century. And I think that, at least on the surface, we can say that that we are living through a period of great upheaval, great economic uncertainty. One thing that he wrote a lot about was that um, at the end of feudalism, people were no longer born into a trade, born into a neighborhood. Their life was no longer determined um, by the circumstances in which they came to be, um, which was the first time in recorded history that the future was thrown into such uncertainty. And I think that it's not a stretch to think about a lot of people that you know we know have brought to power 
uh, demagogues like Trump and Orban and Netanyahu, uh, it's not a stretch to think of them as people who are in a similar situation where they actually lack the the skills or the information to imagine who they might be or who their children might be in a generation. And that is an incredibly unsettling and, 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 and frightening state for most people, right? Um, and so he argues that that's, that's when people look for a magic helper and they say, okay, I, I give up this freedom too, it's too much for me, in exchange for you telling me who, I'm, who I'll be and what will happen. Mm-hmm. You mentioned um, the legacy of totalitarianism, and that's really, um, as I understand it, the subject of your last book, uh, and, and how it returned um, to, to Russia from the place where it existed for, for the better part of a century. The, the part of that that's most interesting to me personally, and I'm wondering if we could just talk about for a minute, is uh, the condition of doublethink, which you talked about again in your uh, lecture the other night at the American Academy, that it seems like uh, it was first codified or, or defined by Orwell, but reached its kind of lived apotheosis uh, in the Soviet Union. As I understand it, though you, you have studied it more closely than I, so correct my definition, but it's essentially the negotiation of, on the one hand, a kind of singular official reality that is allowed and propagated, and one you have to give at least an outward allegiance to, um, and your real lived sensory or experiential uh, reality, which contradicts uh, the first oftentimes. And doublethink is, as you put it in your lecture, that the act of balancing or negotiating between those two contradictory perceptions. In accordance with the principles of doublethink, it does not matter if the war is not real or when it is that victory is not possible. The war is not meant to be won. It is meant to be continuous. Yes, although I think you sa- you, make, you make it sound a little bit too um, comprehensible. Because I think that the way that you just, just described it, you know, most of us actually exist in that state all the time, uh, that state of negotiation, right? Um, this is how I think about my life. You know, I, I think I'm in, you know, this kind of relationship. And then I have a fight with my girlfriend, and it turns out that my lived experience of that relationship is very different from the framework uh, in which I've placed this relationship. And so the negotiation begins. And, you know, that's... Um, that's actually not, I think, uh, the, the key part of it. The key part of it is that they're not in contradiction. Right? So in fact, that negotiation isn't happening. Um, what happens is this kind of seamless switching back and forth between two contradictory worldviews and, and, and the ability to exist in both of them. And um, the, the great Soviet sociologist Yuri Levada, he defined them as antinomies, right? So um, you know, philosophical frameworks that are fundamentally, you know, both could, uh, could be true, but they're fundamentally incompatible. Mm-hmm. And so Soviet, uh, this, uh, what he called Homo Sovieticus, the Soviet man, lives in antinomies all the time. A great example is the sort of, um, the relationship between the, the Homo Sovieticus and the state, right? On the one hand, it's extremely important to know that you live, and this is very true of people now, right? Um, to to know that you live in a great country that has a superior military and that uh, that you know that threatens the entire world and um, and is is superior to the to the rest of the world in all sorts of different ways, um, and you know it's just it's just pure greatness, and and your identity depends on it, and on the other hand, 
you're constantly jilted by the state. You're cheated out of everything that's yours. Um, it, it, it's, the state is never fair to you. It's, 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 it's profoundly corrupt. And those two things exist in, you know, in, in, in sort of stasis in the absence of contradiction. And, or another example I'll give you that, uh, that actually the, the, uh, the, the memory activist group Memorial has, has used to extraordinary effectiveness. They wanted to draw out this contradiction, so they trained a whole bunch of interviewers who, go, who do their field studies in the summer when they have so-called expeditions to interview people who grew up around gulag sites about the inmates in the gulag. And invariably, they elicit very sympathetic testimonies. So, you know, how they, people who saw these, uh, these inmates felt sympathy for them and they wanted to feed them and they thought, they're, you know, they're just human. And then what they do is they, ha- they take a break, right? So they train interviewers to either go to the bathroom or ask about the train schedule to get back to Moscow, something to sort of break the flow of the interview, and then ask a question about the purpose of the gulag. And then these people launch into tirades about how necessary the gulag was and how it was essential for the war effort and, and how it sort of created the greatness of the country. And so that's another, you know, that's a contradiction between lived memory and... Um, and conceptual kind of memory, and, and people inhabit it quite comfortably and almost universally in Russia. You know, that, that tension is in a way exactly what I'm most interested in, in, in writing about here in my own work um, at the Academy, which is, on the one hand, the modern Russian person having no particular esteem uh, or faith or even deep loyalty uh, to the state, being well aware of all of its many uh, inefficiencies, injustices, deep corruption, uh, and so on, having no illusions about those truths, but at the same time, finding the state somewhat inevitable, the kind of singular institution or singular path toward realization of all of one's ambitions, goals, and so on, and being this kind of portal toward greatness or, or kind of being part of a collective entity that, that gives one uh, the feeling of, uh, of a form of greatness. And, and I'd like to share a kind of hypothesis of, of my own and, and test it against your own uh, thinking and, and research on the subject. And that whether you call it doublethink or, or in your talk at the Academy, you borrowed the term schizophrenia um, from Orwell, my hypothesis um, is that this breeds, this condition uh, breeds a kind of deep and in some ways total cynicism, a, a belief. Uh, if, to the extent cynicism can be genuine, if that's not a contradiction in terms, but a very sincere belief, uh, even certainty that people can't act from genuine motives or, or belief that self-interest is the only driving force in, in human affairs, um, and that this cynicism, this is my sort of take uh, or, or read on things, is what proved uh, so ruinous uh, for Russia's politics uh, over the past generation, let's say. Um, and that as long as this lingering chronic symptom of, of, of doublethink, this kind of total cynicism, was or, or is dominant in Russian political uh, and civic life, um, you're probably not going to see a great change in the country's politics. Uh, do we think about that in, in similar ways or, or, um, or not? I think yes and no. I mean, it's a really interesting hypothesis because, um, I mean, I think you're right in diagnosing this pervasive cynicism. I wonder if it comes from doublethink. I think that there are at least a couple of other stories that can be told about it. One is that after the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, 
the system that was created was capitalism from the pages of Soviet newspapers, right? It was capitalism as, you know, in the only sort of available uh, imaginary, which was every man for himself, which was we, um, we completely reject sort of any idea of fairness and equality because these ideas have been discredited, right? In that sense, it is related to what, to, to what you're saying, right? That um, people who grew up with, um, with the experience of having these great human values constantly, on the one hand, articulated and on, on the other hand, violated, right? Um, so they finally say, okay, let's, you know, throw hypocrisy out of the window and we're going to be sincere in, in our cravings. <laughs> Another way to tell the story is, and again, it's not unrelated to what you're saying, right? Um, is that this kind of cynicism is actually uh, fundamental to fascist ideology, right? The world is rotten. Human nature is rotten. Right? You kind of need that premise to liberate the kind of mobilization that is actually essential for a totalitarian regime. It wasn't pronounced in Soviet ideology, but I think it was always sort of there as an undertone. Right. And and now it's 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 really very much on the surface. But I think you know we're sitting here in Berlin, where where this idea, right, of the, the you know the 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 self interested aggressive nature of man as as his na- natural state, right? I mean that was that was that was hugely important, and I think that's kind of what 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 Putinism has unleashed and weaponized. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're absolutely right in talking about the cynicism being as being sincere. I mean it's really. It's a cornerstone of, of, of Putin's ideology. And, of course, the, I mean, that sounds insane, right, to say that uh, rottenness is a cornerstone of ideology. But actually, again, if you go back to, to the great totalitarian ideologies of the 20th century, that's kind of how they worked. They were imbued with more meaning and, and more intelligence by historians who were writing about them after. But if you read contemporary accounts, that, that's what was most prominent. Um, and... You know, a few years ago, you would encounter, for example, like um, Russian businessmen or or even Russian so-called journalists uh, on some panel at some great Western university. At one point, at some point or another, they would like inevitably call bullshit on what their interlocutors were saying with great sincerity and saying, "Come on, you know, we can be honest here. Everything is for sale, right?" And then there would be this wall of of, of of not understanding because their interlocutors who were articulating values actually were sincerely believing in, in those values. And you know, at least up, right up until the moment the Russians said everything is for sale, which is what, you know, they think that we engage in this conversation about values as a performance, but really you know, everything is for sale. That's how the world works. They know the truth. But, and I also think that that's... Um, the driver of Russian meddling in various Western politics is this. Like, fundamentally, 
Russia wants to bring the world into concurrence with what it thinks the world is, which is a broken, corrupt mess. I agree with you in my hesitance to make sort of over-determinative parallels between Putin's Russia and, say, uh, Trump's America, uh, and, and I avoid uh, doing them where, making them where, where possible. Yet, um, I couldn't help but think of uh, American politics when you talked about rottenness uh, as a cornerstone um, of ideology, and, and that does sound uh, familiar. My ears perked up at, at that phrase. Um, and I'm wondering if we could talk about cynicism as it exists um, in the American political scene um, these days. You, you uh, mentioned in your lecture the other night that to the extent this kind of twinned culture of lies and cynicism has appeared in American politics or British politics, German politics, it's not because this was somehow purposely and directly exported from Russia. We, we figured it out um, quite well all on our own. Um, but nonetheless, as you write uh, and speak and, and generally participate in American civic political discourse and encounter this culture of lying and, and the cynicism that um, is its kind of evil, uh, evil twin, does anything remind you um, of what you have reported on and written on uh, in the Russian context? Are, the, are those cultures, is the culture of cynicism, in other words, a kind of universal phenomenon that has shared uh, characteristics wherever it appears or, or uh, what you notice and, and observe in America circa 2018 is, is somehow fundamentally different than what you um, reported on in your last book? Well, I think the answer is both. Uh, I think that, I mean, cynicism is not a terribly complicated worldview, right? It is, it is actually similar wherever you encounter it. The context in which it appears is, is quite different. Um, I think that the roots of it in Russia are deeper. It's more pervasive. And it doesn't have an opposing worldview. I mean, it pretty much has a monopoly in the country. It's sort of the status of, of the mental opposition to it, or the moral opposition to it, is, is like the status of dissidents in the Soviet Union, a whole a bunch of crazies, not normal people, and literally not normal, right? Because the norm is very, very different, uh, who are marginal and, you know, a little embarrassing to encounter and listen to. Uh, and, um, the the words you I'm sure you're familiar with the words that Russians have come up to to describe these people like demshazah mm-hmm. right which uh, which is democratic schizophrenic um, which pretty much right, as, as uh, if the two terms are, are natural synonyms are, right. they're, they're natural synonyms and, uh, but also you know the, the, it, it conveys this sort of you know these little crazies you know the, like the the village idiots who, who walk around talking about truth and stuff like that and um, in the states. I mean that's that's it's very different, right? Um, the common language of of public discourse of uh, still dominant, I think, public discourse and 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 the the language of of the media, the language of uh, the way we discuss history, you know, it's all rooted in those values as sort of as tangible stories. It, that's the stories we tell ourselves in order to understand the world in which we live, which I think is really different from Russia. Um, but, but when you look at that very large segment of the population that's, that's embraced this very simple, and I think that that's part of its appeal, right? It's, I mean, it just simplifies everything. You, don't have, you, can, you can turn off your man, mental faculties the moment you 
embrace this 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 worldview. Um, you look at that very large segment of the population, uh, you know, the Trump base, basically. Then yeah, you see very similar things, and and um, and I think I mean it's weird how reporting on Russia prepares you in some ways for reporting in the States these days. The part that feels the most familiar to me um, is the kind of postmodern nature of Putin-era propaganda as opposed to its Soviet antecedent, as I understand them both, right? If, if Soviet propaganda ultimately wanted the viewer to believe in something, there was a kind of message or notion um, that the, um, the propagandist wanted to implant in the viewer or reader's mind and have them believe that, you know, communism was a more just and virtuous system than capitalism or whatever the case may be. Putin-era propaganda is really devoted to the kind of demolition of truth um, as an idea, right? To sort of flood the, the viewer or reader's mind with so many contradictory um, truths or, or, or versions of reality that the viewer sort of believes none of them. I mean, it's not a, a very original idea at all of mine. This, uh, I actually disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that Soviet era propaganda did the same thing, just in a different form, right? And I think that that's actually true of totalitarian propaganda in general. Totalitarian, and you know, that's again, that's not like my opinion. That's that's Arendt's opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote that totalitarian propaganda destroys the very idea of truth, right? Uh, because truth becomes so mutable, and because you, um, the totalitarian subject is is always chasing the current ideology, right? It's a matter of survival to try to, uh, to, to know what the current ideology is. And, um, and so while there may have been an overarching sort of message that this is the best possible system and we know the laws of history, the purpose of, of propaganda was to replace the idea of truth and no, no ability, right, with, um, with the need to receive the, the current line and to know what the what, what the current line of thinking is the current quote unquote truth is and in that sense you know the, the more absurd it was uh, the better it took hold because because the a vivid absurd message could be easily perceived and and, and and followed but that's what destroys the the very idea of truth and that again that's the the foundation on which Putinism exists which does make it quite different from what we see in the West now. Mm-hmm. Though there is an element of that that I do find scarily present in some quarters of the Western political discourse where it feels at times less like a kind of contest between different and opposing truths where one camp has its kind of read or interpretation of reality and another camp has its and, and, and there's sort of two beliefs, two concrete beliefs doing battle in the uh, public square. It's somebody's version of the truth, not the truth. He didn't have a, a conversation truth is truth. about... I, I don't mean to go like... I, no, I it isn't truth. Truth isn't truth. At times, or with increasing frequency, it can feel like there is... Uh, one side isn't coming with its version of the truth. It's coming with just a sort of total disbelief in the, in the notion of truth and, and a kind of refusal to even engage in that kind of truth versus truth uh, debate. And, and that's the part that feels most worrying to me and also somewhat reminiscent of, of kind of Russia, modern Russia's postmodern, um, the way that the, the sort of postmodern demolition of, of truth uh, that, that is a hallmark of Putin's Russia. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I was pushing back against against the idea that Soviet propaganda mm-hmm. was sincere <laughs> uh, I, uh, and, and that its purpose was to make people believe something. I 
don't actually think that's that that's true. But I completely agree that that yeah, this this impulse to replace the idea of knowability with the current lie, uh, current lie, right? Um, that's I mean that's a totalitarian impulse, and we see it popping up in the states. Mm-hmm. In your lecture, and it sounds like the work you're engaged in now, the way you at least personally have found. Uh, out of this this quagmire, or at least the kind of hope of getting out of this quagmire, is through uh, the promise or, or power uh, of imagination, uh, giving yourself the task or even the mission, as you put it the other night, uh, quote, to describe what we do not yet see or what we see but cannot yet describe. And that struck me as a journalist uh, like a very powerful and, and in, intriguing, compelling call to arms. But after the talk, I found myself struggling to think through in my own mind, about how I, say, would implement that, right? I'm, I'm, as a journalist, used to the standard repertorial mode of writing down what I see and hear. And what you're calling on yourself to do, and, and maybe others, is something more, well, imaginative. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm wondering if you yourself have had any luck kind of uh, instrumentalizing that uh, notion, and, and what does it actually look like? I mean, you're asking exactly the right question. That's exactly the problem with my current project is that I'm trying to do something that the journalists are not trained to do and aren't expected to do. What I'm trying to do is bring together things that we don't normally bring together. So like standard journalism, you go to a place, you observe what happens in that place, and you ask people how they tell the story of what happens in that place, and you write that. I have found that that I can't apply that to the current project because the story and the practice uh, and the people, they kind of all exist in, in somewhat different places. So I go to a place and I, describe, uh, I take notes on what happens in that place. And I talk to the people there about um, why they do what they do the way they do. And then I try to bring in interpretations, including future-oriented interpretations from other fields. But, you know, sort of, I'm I'm basically just increasing the distance in what journalists normally do. Normally, you would talk to somebody who has tried to interpret the exact thing that you're describing. So I'm seeing if I can use interpretation of a different thing to help me interpret this thing that I'm observing. And maybe that interpretation will allow me to describe it in a more imaginative way. Right? I don't know if what I said just said makes any sense at all. <laughs> I can try to be more specific if you want. Uh, no, no, it, it makes a certain sense. I'm, I'm, and I don't want to sort of place more demands on you than uh-huh. are appropriate given where you are in this, uh, in this project. It's one thing to talk about a finished book and another thing entirely to talk about a, a future book. But as a fellow journalist appear in that sense, I was intrigued. Uh, I was compelled by your kind of call to arms and and, and wanted in some way to answer it uh, and then found myself confounded about what would that look like were I to actually set out to work the next day? What would that mean? You know, how do I apply my repertorial faculties to that that challenge? Right. So, I mean, I think it's still, we still can only do so many things as journalists Uh, and, you know, make things up is not one of them. So... (laughs) um, 
So I think it's just it's just it's just using them in some in, in slightly different ways, right? Uh, I mean, in I've been in a, in, a, in a parallel life, I've been a science journalist, and in science journalism, a lot of the time, what you do is you take disciplines that are separate from each other or existent in 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 proximate neighborhoods, but don't actually talk to each other and talk to them. And and that I think creates like the best science journalism is when you're not just talking to geneticists, but you're also talking to ethicists, and you're also talking to to archaeologists, and then you come up with a picture th- uh, that a geneticist or an archaeologist or an ethicist wouldn't by themselves give you. Um, so I say you know do the same thing, but just like a little bit more imaginatively. So I, again, I go to an urban farmer in Detroit. I ta- I see that they, um, they make jam. And the way that they talk about making jam is, um, is actually in terminology uh, that, uh, that isn't terribly helpful to what I'm trying to describe. They talk about it in sort of terminology of failure capitalism. And then I go and talk to um, a humanist geographer who is working on post uh, post-capitalist economies and theorizing post-capitalist economies and then I try to see if in this jam making there is a kernel of a post-capitalist economy that I can identify because I've talked to her but the people who make the jam can't actually talk to me about that um, because they don't have words for the thing that I think maybe they're creating Thank you. That that uh, that is it provides a clear um, uh, okay. path forward uh, at least for me at least. So so I, I'm 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 grateful for that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can't resist asking at least one more kind of Russia focused question. Um, and that listening to you the other night and 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 now here in this conversation, when I think about imaginative politics, my mind immediately goes um, to Bolshevism, which is uh, seems to me if not the, among the most sort of signal and, and really triumphant imaginative political movements. And I'm thinking more of the kind of underground revolutionary phase of early or true Bolshevism, not the ossified bureaucratic state that it bequeathed a few generations later. Um, but it's clear that there is an incredible power in imaginative politics. But within that power, always lurking just off stage is a very dark power. Uh, and I'm wondering whether... Uh, taking, uh, keeping in mind some lessons of um, Bolshevism or, 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 or more broadly, how you think we can guard or protect against the darker powers that are lurking in, in imaginative politics? That's a great question, and it's actually, it actually hits on something that's, that to me is personally very important about this project because I realized at one point that the way that I was brought up, and I was brought up in the sort of dissident family in Moscow, was I was taught as an axiom from the time I was a child that utopianism was always going to lead to totalitarianism, which is a really radical thing to teach a kid in Moscow in the in the 1970s. But, um, and I can certainly understand why my parents thought that, but it didn't occur to me to question that basic premise until I was like 50 years old. I am... Um, Everything I learned all sorts of things, but that utopianism leads to totalitarianism was completely unquestioned, um, and and so for me, this working on this book is a personal breakthrough, because I'm like breaking free of this of this particular legacy of my parents. Um, I think that that 
caution, right, that any ideology can become totalitarian. Again, that's that's a, that's an Arendtian idea, right, that um, uh, no ideology carries totalitarianism within its thinking. Uh, every ideology carries totalitarianism as, as a potential by virtue of being an ideology, right? But you also can't have politics without ideology. What makes an ideology totalitarian is encapsulation, when it becomes closed off to argument um, and and to any interaction with with lived reality, right? So ideology is separate, and again, that that brings us back to this, this sort of ideas that you're supposed to believe, whether or not they have any relationship to what you actually experience. So um, ideology lives in a separate world, and that's what what gives it its 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 totalitarian nature. So in that sense, I think you know that Trumpism is a totalitarian ideology, even though you'd be hard put to find an idea there, right? But the way it functions as a completely encapsulated world that is impermeable to argument, impermeable to fact, impermeable to 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 surrounding reality, that's totalitarian. Go ahead. Go. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, not you. Not you. Your organization's terrible. Your organization's terrible. Let's go. Go ahead. Quiet. Quiet. Go ahead. She's she's asking a question. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. Go ahead. It's not actually in the nature of utopian thinking. Um, it's, it's in the nature of a particular kind of politics. One answer I thought I heard in your lecture the other night to this question of how we guard against imaginations, totalitarian uh, impulses or, or, or possibilities, is when you talked about um, this Swedish political party, the initiative, um, that I guess actually has Danish roots, which sounded like a very interesting and, and compelling model, the substance of which, um, or, or to put it in one sentence, uh, this party has no fixed platform, but it's rather it has a fixed vision of, of process. It has a uh, uh, what matters is how the positions of the party are reached um, through different kinds of consensus dialogues and so on, rather than what those positions are. And in fact, those positions can and often do change. And that struck me as maybe one answer to my previous question: uh, How do we guard against imaginations, kind of darker or more totalitarian possibilities? And that's you channel imagination toward process, and, and that kind of guides imagination toward its most sort of felicitous or, or productive ends and acts as a kind of shield against its darker manifestations by, by using it to construct uh, institutions uh, of, of process rather than ideology. Am I on to something that you're I, thinking about in your work? Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, I mean, I'm particularly interested, uh, it's, it's funny because there are, uh, there are two different political, not movements, but you know, phenomena that I'm writing about in the book. So one is this um, this Danish uh, Swedish political party, the Initiative and the Alternative, which is actually based on this uh, thinking, um, this this philosophy called metamodernism, uh, which um, which is you know an imaginative exercise in itself. It's an imaginary philosopher who has written books about metamodernism, but is basically about sort of thinking thinking like a postmodernist but and acting like a modernist. So it's a very hopeful kind of postmodernism. Uh, but um, they have these facilitated groups that continuously produce the party's platform. So they have a party, 
that is guarded against ossification and sort of encapsulation by by having a constantly a constant conversation. And then on the other hand, I've been writing uh, reporting on um, Spanish municipalism, which in in Spain uh, three years ago they had um, elections both in Madrid and in Barcelona that brought uh, into city government politicians from from social activist backgrounds who had a platform without a party. And they call themselves the platform. And so they have very wide-ranging ideas, but they're not pinned to sort of the, car- the current political matrix. Right? You can't really place them as particularly right or, or left in the existing frameworks because they actually have re- refused the vessel of the political party. They, they have just ideas. Um, and I think either works. Right. Um, either is a great intervention in democracy as we've constituted, uh, which goes back to my idea that democracy is an idea and not a set of mechanisms. And, the, and when the mechanisms become calcified, that's when we start running into problems. Right. Well, thank you. I really appreciated this conversation. Your, your last book was brilliant uh, and you. somewhat pessimistic. Uh, it sounds like your next book will be brilliant uh, and at least a shade more optimistic. So I'm, I'm doubling it. Thank uh, you. <laughs> we'll let that be uh, whatever small motivation it, c- it can serve as. But thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk. Best of luck to you. You've been listening to an interview with writer and journalist Masha Gessen, who spoke with the New Yorker's Moscow correspondent Joshua Yaffa a Bosch Fellow in Public Policy at the American Academy in Berlin. Gessen is the author of The Future is History, How Totalitarianism Reclaimed Russia, and Joshua Yaffa is currently working on a book about compromise and ambition in Putin's Russia, focusing on the lives of a dozen individuals trying to navigate its complexities. You can listen to more of our Beyond the Lecture series interviews on our website, americanacademy.de. There, you can also read the latest from the American Academy's Berlin Journal, watch recent lecture videos, and connect with the Academy on Facebook and Twitter. This episode of Beyond the Lecture was produced by Christina Gonzalez. I'm your host, R.J. McGill from the American Academy in Berlin. Thanks for listening.